We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Ella Mills is successful, beautiful, a happily married mother of one who has a thriving business and almost 2 million followers on Instagram. You might not think this woman knows much about failure, but in fact, her success is founded on one deeply significant failure, her health. As an undergraduate at St Andrews University, she started experiencing chronic fatigue and heart palpitations. Mills was also struggling with digestive issues and blood pressure. At points, her stomach was so inflamed she could only fit into her father's clothes. For much of that time, she was confined to bed. Mills went in and out of hospital for four months and was eventually diagnosed with postural tachycardia syndrome, a condition that affects the workings of the autonomic nervous system. The cocktail of medication she was prescribed had limited success, and so Mills decided to take matters into her own hands. She researched the impact diet could have on illness and, in 2012, started blogging about how a plant-based, gluten-free diet had made her feel better. As her symptoms subsided, the blog became a hit. Her first book, published in 2015, was the best-selling debut cookbook ever in the UK. Now, working in tandem with her husband, Matthew, the Deliciously Ella brand comprises of five cookbooks, a recipe and yoga app, several food products, a deli, and a chart-topping podcast. The business employs 70 people, and their products are stocked in more than 2,500 stores. This is quite a turnaround for a 28-year-old woman who admits she was once a terrible cook and didn't have a clue how to read spreadsheets. You learn so much from every mistake, she says. It's inevitable that you will make mistakes. I think the question is how quickly you can admit them. Ella Mills, welcome to How to Fail. Thank you very much. You know, I'm the number one fan of your podcast. You're so It's like the biggest honour. 
<laughs> no, the honour is all mine. Did I get those facts and figures correct? So the only thing is, well, and this is actually one of our three failures, is we don't now employ 70 people. We now employ about 40 people. But that is part of one of our one of our three failures. Interesting. Okay, we can come back to that. And yeah. I can pretend that that mistake was deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It prompts one of the failures. Um, I love that quote that I read out about learning from every mistake. And I wonder, it's quite a big question to start off with, but do you regret your mistakes? Is there anything that you regret? Or do you feel that because each mistake taught you something successful, that now you're happy to have made them, if that makes sense? I think career-wise, 100%. And I think the more we've gone on, the more I've appreciated that it also would have been impossible. I might have made different mistakes and had different failings, but it would have been completely impossible to get to where we are now and do so many different things without having made so many mistakes I'm obviously worse than others and had so many failings and so I don't think you can regret them because it's impossible to live without them basically and and they have taught us so much more I think we've become significantly better on the back of everything we've got wrong than what we've got right I think you don't really learn that much from when you get something right and does that apply to you personally as well I think I feel a bit different with that. I think there's a mix. I mean, I think, I know for me, the biggest failing, the number one failure was um, failure to kind of embrace vulnerability. And in that sort of sense, and that's going back to my illness, I would say no, that is somewhere where I have a lot of regret actually. And I think I've learned a lot, which I think makes me a happier person now, but it's one of the things I've got most wrong in my life. And I, I don't know, I think my life would have been much, much better, even in a really dark time without having not made such a big mistake. I started off the introduction saying that you are successful and beautiful, and I know that that will probably embarrass you. Yeah, <laughs> a little cringe. But I do think it's worth addressing because there will be people listening to this who think, oh, well, she has it all. And I'm very keen on this podcast to show that everyone has private battles beyond the public facade. And I just wonder what you would say to someone who would think that you don't have anything to contribute on that level. Yeah, I completely agree. I think we can all be guilty of that. You look at other people and you think, oh, they've got it all right. You know, I'm doing it all wrong. I don't think that you'll ever meet anyone like that. And it's interesting doing Delicious Yellow because I've opened up a lot about things that I've struggled with, especially my health. And then, for example, when Matt's mum was very ill, we were really open about that and him kind of dealing with his grief and things. And I think because we've had an openness of sort of failings and challenges and struggles, often when I meet people, even if it's a kind of personally, it's a friend of a friend or it's a book signing or an event or something, people are very honest with me about especially health struggles, kind of mental or physical. And so I think I've come to realise that all these people who on the surface look so bubbly and so happy and they're so pretty or whatever it is, actually are really, 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 really struggling. Like I'll never forget, I went to one of my best friend's weddings and there was this girl there and she was dating the best man and she was so gorgeous and so bubbly. And she came up to me in the loo and sort of basically started crying and was like, I'm so ill. She was like, I'm having to do all these different things to kind of keep up with people no one really knows. I'm struggling so much. I've kind of never felt this bad in my life. She's like, I'm worried everyone's going to think I'm boring. Do people think you're boring? Do you worry about this? And kind of literally spills her whole guts. And it's like the person at the wedding that you'd kind of think, oh my gosh, I wish I was that girl. You know, she's so outgoing. And actually she was probably struggling more than anyone there. And it's it's been a really good lesson in the fact that I'm yet to meet anyone who actually has that sense of perfection that we're chasing that doesn't exist. 
So I came on your podcast a few months ago and loved it. And you present the podcast with Matt, your husband. And there was one of the most moving exchanges I've ever had on any podcast, my own or anyone else's, when Matt talked about his mother dying. For people who aren't familiar with what happened, could you tell us? Yeah, so Matt's mum was diagnosed with a very aggressive cancerous brain tumour completely out of nowhere almost two years ago. And it just kind of knocked everything for six. His family is so, so, so close. And he, his mum was his kind of complete sort of guiding light in everything that he did. And he spent the next year kind of watching her go from, you know, the most kind of vivacious, like energy-filled, incredibly successful, brilliant woman to, you know, someone who was really, really sick. And she was incredible throughout, like her optimism, her resilience. She really, she was a um, politician and she campaigned a lot around cancer care and cancer treatment, especially brain cancer, where there's not been a huge amount of development in the last few decades. But she did pass away within the year and it was for him and, you know, the whole family and his sister, it was just the most sort of unexpected challenge that, you know, and the hardest thing I think they could have could have been through but then you know I think as as he talked about with you like he he did learn so 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 much from it that you know more than anything just kind of appreciating everything because I think nothing at least I've never seen anything that highlights just how quickly life can change you know it changed in a 24-hour period that teaches you a lot of kind of appreciation and gratitude that we can sometimes forget. I'm so sorry. No. So Matt's mother was, as you mentioned, a phenomenal politician, Tessa Jowell. And you're the daughter of a politician. Yeah, we have an arranged marriage. Yeah, (laughs) I was about to ask. Yeah. How did it happen? Yeah, no, honestly, I'm not joking. It's like, basically, it's an arranged marriage. My dad and his mum used to work together. And so they've known each other for ages and ages. And here's another failure. Matt wanted to be a golfer. And that was his whole life from when he was like three years old. And then he got to about 26 and realized he was playing professionally, but wasn't going to be in the top 50. And so decided to quit, was really lost, worked in finance for a few years, hated it. Started a business with some friends and they were actually started a farming business in Sierra Leone. Quite random. Anyway, they were doing so well. They raised one of the biggest private equity rounds ever for West Africa. And it was going brilliantly. And then three weeks after they signed the deal, Ebola hit and all the money was pulled. And so they had no idea what to do. And they were kind of had all this land, all these people, and were looking at kind of different options. And they were thinking, you know, well, why don't we start growing different crops there? Maybe we can make some interesting products that we can then sell in the UK using the, whatever we can produce on that land. And then he was reading the Sunday Times and it was just after my first book came out and he was reading an article about me and was like, oh, she sounds like she could be interesting for this project. And then realized that he knew my dad. And so he got my dad's email address from his mum, emailed my dad and was like, oh, she, Ella sounds really interesting. Can you introduce me? And I, I'd just broken up my boyfriend in four years and obviously was in that moment of like, I'm going to be on my own forever. He obviously dumped me. And so I was having, yeah. Not obvious <laughs> at all, no, but, but okay. Obvious, what a loser. <laughs> what a loser. Um, no, all's well that ends well. Anyway, but yeah, you're having those moments of thinking, oh, I'm so alone. And then I got, anyway, my dad emails me and he's like, this is the best person you'll ever meet in your life. He's the most handsome, charming, blah, blah, blah. And like sent me a photo of him. I mean, it was so creepy. <laughs> really was like extraordinarily creepy and anyway and so then so I met Matt and we met a couple of times and then we went out and a week later week after our first date we moved in together yeah we were engaged and had a dog and decided to work together within four months and we were married within a year but then two days after we got engaged my parents told us that they were getting divorced and that my dad was gay 
and had had been having a long-term relationship with someone else. So, you know, it just is the best example. You see, people would have thought, oh my gosh, she's so lucky. You know, there she is, she's met someone. And actually two days later, you realise that like the foundation of your life has completely fallen apart. We're meeting in the week after Philip Schofield has said that he's gay. Did that bring up stuff for you? I mean, how did you manage that? Yeah, I mean, it was... It was a lot to kind of not not. I mean, we my we're very open minded as a family. I had not a, literally couldn't have minded less about that. But it's just a lot. It was a lot to process, especially when you're on such a high, and then obviously your family's in such a low of kind of breaking up. But you know, ever it's again like we're four years on now, five years on now, and everyone is so much happier than they've been in like 15 years. And so again, I think it's the best example of like, and I was just on holiday with my mum and her new boyfriend. And you just think, in the same place that we found out about everything else. And you just think like, give it a few years. And like, life just changes all the time. And I don't think anyone would have expected my dad's about to get married. My mum's got a nice new boyfriend. And you realise like, God, all this complete crap has turned really good. But at the time, it was complete hell. Of course. This is why, age 28, you're such a wise old soul. <laughs> You've been through some stuff. Yeah. And, and that's exactly. So we, you know, everyone's like, oh my gosh, they're having the best relationship ever. And it's like, well, within three years of being together, we dealt with that with my family. And then as soon as that kind of came into the clear and everyone was kind of calming down and things felt better, Matt's mum got sick. And so it was like, gosh, you know, you're kind of, life's such a roller coaster. We've spoken about your dad. Your mum, her maiden name is or was Sainsbury. Yeah. And she's from the Sainsbury's family. Yeah. How does it feel? It's deliciously Ella in Sainsbury's, I'm assuming it is. It is, but they were the last people that took <sighs> us. <laughs> Classic. But how does it feel now, walking in and seeing your own product there? It must be incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. And I mean, my mum's, my so it makes her really, really happy. And yeah, now that we're in there, also she's like the most loyal Sainsbury shopper ever. So I was like, well, get our stuff on Ocado, like go to Tesco. And she's like, no, I can't do that. So luckily now she's really happy. Let's move on to your failures. Yeah. Your first failure is your failure to embrace vulnerability so explain a bit more about that because I think it relates to a period in your life when you were ill yeah exactly I mean I think it's probably forever but it was at that point that I think happened the most and for me I think the fundamental problem in failing there was that I so struggled to like I guess be honest with myself and accept the fact that I was really really sick and that I was quite different to everyone else and I think it was a challenging I mean it happened when I was turning 21 and so I was in the second year of uni and like everyone's going out and they're having so much fun. And obviously everyone's priorities at that point are like who drunk what and with who and what happened with who, you know, it's not it's like, that's what matters at that point in your life most of the time. And I couldn't do any of that. And I really struggled to open up to people. I felt so embarrassed about being different and so embarrassed about the kind of failing of my health and the fact that I, yeah, just felt so kind of small and insignificant and kind of just useless next to everyone else. And I'd so struggled to process that. And I think because I'd got sick pretty quickly, like at the change in which that had happened, and I, I just didn't want to admit it. And I didn't want to kind of really yeah, accept it where I was. I really struggled to open up about it and be vulnerable. And I do think that vulnerability is what attracts people to each other and it lets people in and... Instead, I just closed myself off completely. Like, for example, I was moving in that year with three girls 
And they'd been really good friends of mine for the last two years. And they're lovely girls. And instead of kind of calling them up and being like, this is why I've been completely off the grid for the last three months. Like, this is what's going on. I sent a Facebook message as a group to the three of them and was like, hi, here's a link kind of thing to, to what I've got. That's why I've been quiet. You know, like I'm not feeling very well, basically. I mean, I'm not, I don't have the message and I probably could find it, but it was effectively that. I mean, it was rubbish. Like it didn't tell them anything. And so obviously like they didn't reply with much either. And it stuck with me forever because I then thought, okay, well, they don't care. No one cares. Yeah. They all just do think I'm weird. It kind of confirmed everything that I'd thought of myself and as a result I didn't really talk to anyone else about it and instead of saying to people like oh I I can't come out at the moment but like do you want to come and watch a movie you know one night where you don't want to go out you know I never did that I never invited anyone in and my loneliness was just off the scale I had one friend who was one of my best friends still and she had been very ill about six months before and so I confided in her because I felt like she understood but other than her And like my mum, I didn't want to talk about it with anyone. So I basically just didn't really see anyone for a few years. And that was just like the most isolating experience ever. And it created this kind of almost sense of like thinking that everyone else was bad, real sense of victimization. And yeah, this kind of loneliness, which was self-perpetuating and just, it made what was already a really difficult situation infinitely worse because you know, obviously if your physical health is really bad, it often impacts on your mental health, but then add in that sense of kind of isolation and loneliness and it made it a hundred times worse than it needed to be. And that is, I think, one of the things that I've got most wrong in my life. And actually I think it's taken longer to repair my self-esteem from feeling so kind of rejected, even though I'd almost caused the rejection, I still had this kind of deep sense of rejection of everyone around me. And I think it's taken so much longer to heal from that than it has to get the symptoms under control. And I'm still not 100% convinced that I'm like completely healed from that. I think I still have this little bit at the back of me that's convinced that like you, I will be rejected by people. Do you worry that people don't like you? Oh my gosh, that's literally my number one worry. I still have this kind of burning paranoia of people thinking I'm so boring. But I think it was doing life differently to other people that made me feel like I was boring because I was different and that that must be what everyone else thought. And it stayed, yeah, it's just really stuck with me. Has motherhood helped with that? Because your baby presumably doesn't reject you. Yeah. Does, was that healing? Yeah, I think so. I do. And I think it has probably given me a bit more of a sense of perspective. And I think I mind less what other people think because I feel like it doesn't matter compared to what she thinks which I think has probably really 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 helped and it's it's you know it's got better little bit by little bit by little bit and but I still kind of find I have to like push myself to like you know make new friends and like reach out to people and say like oh do you want to do this and because I still think people are going to turn around and be like no I don't want to spend time with you is going to a party where you don't know anyone on your own your idea of hell genuine hell like nothing petrifies me more Where do you think the shame came from with your illness? Was there a particular way that it manifested that made you feel like you couldn't be honest about it? I think it was two things. I think the fact that it was quite weird, you know, it's not something that people have heard of or know anything about. And also it's mostly invisible. And so it's quite hard to explain to people like, oh, I can't control my heart rate. You know, when I stand up, it's 190. That makes me really dizzy. That can make you black out. Like I find it really hard to walk to the end of the street. I think it's quite hard to relate 
to that and and people have never ever ever heard of it and it's like is that real is that not real especially if you can't see anything at all so I think that was one part of it but then the other part was that my stomach was so bad like I've got a picture of my stomach when I was pregnant at like six and a half months compared to when I was sick and it wasn't until six and a half months pregnant that they were the same which is you know quite something and again when that would happen I would just be so embarrassed because you don't want to be defined by it but it's quite hard to like feel you know particularly attractive when your stomach is that swollen it's different when you're pregnant because you can embrace it it's like this kind of you know it's a growing being it's different it's kind of there's a magic in it whereas like there's no magic in your stomach just being that swollen because it's that angry at you did that affect romantic relationships as well oh my gosh completely because like you're you know pretty self-conscious because it it did look a bit weird for sure so did you have any relationships during that time? Yeah, so I had I had the boyfriend that dumped me just before I met Matt and he was absolutely amazing. Like really, really incredible. Like the most supportive person that anyone could possibly be. Which did, again, really help. Like I think if he had rejected me, I don't know what would have happened then. Kind of everyone would have rejected me. Luckily, I think for me that he didn't. Okay, fine. I'm sorry that he I called him a loser. <laughs> I'm sure he was very nice. But he did still dump me. <laughs> um... And what then was the trigger point? What was the point you got to where you thought, no, this isn't working, the medicine isn't working, and I need to do something about it, and this is the route that I'm going to go, I'm going to research diet? It was actually, I tried to do a trip with him. So I hadn't done anything for like the best part of a year, and he wanted to kind of go away for a few days, and I was like, no, I'm going to do this, like I can do it, you know, trying to kind of like be really strong and and kind of again try and like be normal whatever that means and so we booked a few days in retrospect probably wasn't the best location but we went to Marrakesh and I got a kind of vague you know as lots of people do like a bit of an upset stomach and it just snowballed and I lost a stone in under a week um, because I got so sick he had to bring me home like in a wheelchair it was really bad and I got back from that trip and I was like that's the first time that I've tried to kind of be normal and actually do something that's not just watch like the Kardashians and Grey's Anatomy and I I really failed like that was the worst trip ever and yes I said had to be brought home early pushed me home in a wheelchair and so I've and you know obviously that doesn't make you feel particularly sexy either and that that was the moment I think that it dawned on me the reality also because if you don't try to some extent you're not failing and I hadn't tried I'd sat in bed and watch the Kardashians. I couldn't do stuff, but I knew that in some extent, so I didn't even bother. And it was when I bothered to try and do something that it really dawned on me that I couldn't do it. And it kind of slapped me in the face. And I was like, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. And yeah, I think it was just probably the first time I'd been like vaguely honest with myself. And are you a bit of a geek? Because I imagine the research that you did took quite a bit of time <laughs> yeah a total geek once I find something I'm like can geek out on I'm all about it yeah and the, and it was interesting and I I started learning but I then met with my godmother and my godmother had had ME when she was a similar age and she said the thing that really saved her was a hobby I think she had it for like the best part of 10 years for her it had been photography because obviously photography is something you can kind of do anywhere you can you can practice from your sofa so obviously the hobby had to be kind of reasonable given the circumstances and so I thought what's well, really interesting like you know kind of starting it with all the reading but I need to learn to cook so is that the hobby and then a friend of mine said well why don't you do it as a blog and that was completely the plan but I never planned to share 
myself or why I was doing it. And the, the girlfriend who suggested the blog said, but it doesn't make any sense why you're doing what you're doing. Especially at that point, this is beginning of 2012, like vegan food was really weird. Mm. You know, it was like the word vegan kind of made people shudder and like stand back from you. So you kind of, yeah, this like strange hippie and, you know, you're going to get dreadlocks and like wear long flowing clothes and just eat lentils forever. And so people were kind of a bit funny about it. And so she said, you've got to share why you're doing what you're doing. And so I wrote the about and I kind of said, okay, well, this is what's been happening for the last year. Like, this is why I'm going to try and this is why I'm going to try it. Again, like I was so embarrassed that I didn't share it with anyone. I didn't want anyone to see it. And after about three months, the same friend was like, come on, like we've got to be able to see it. And my family wanted to see it. And so I did, I showed them. And, you know, some friends shared it with some friends. And suddenly all these people who I hadn't seen for like two years because I'd completely shut myself away were like, oh, like that's why you've been completely missing. And were so, people were really nice about it and really kind about it. And it, it was a good lesson again in like realizing that I had only hindered myself further by not sharing and not being open. No one was like, oh my God, you total freak. You know, you're so strange. Like, how could you possibly have let this happen? Everyone was like, I'm really sorry to hear that. And did it have an immediate impact? Yeah, it did. Well, I think also I felt empowered by just doing something. I think being honest with yourself and like taking the first step always feels good obviously nothing changed overnight but something changed in my head and I think that did a lot I'm Rachel Martin after hosting morning edition for years I know that the news can wear you down so we made a new podcast called wild card where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Do you have a question about all things love, dating, sex, and relationships? Maybe you're happy in a relationship and want to hear other people's nightmare dating experiences. La 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 Let Me Explain is a qualified social worker and sex and relationships educator. And on her podcast, It's Not You, It's Them but it might be you. Lala answers listeners' questions around love, dating, parenting, and whatever they throw her way. It's not you, it's them, but it might be you, is out on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So how do you manage your condition today? Is it all diet-based Yeah, it's all lifestyle-based. So it took me about two years to come off all the different medicines, but I've been off them since I, about 18 months ago, went on one new one for about two months or so after some things flared up, but like basically touch wood, like on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, I still have to live in a certain way, which I've come to appreciate. And again, can flare up that, oh, you're boring because you can't drink loads and stay out really late. But I think again, motherhood, I has helped me with that probably more than anything because I now have a reason not to want to do those things anyway. And also getting up at 5am with her with a hangover is not fun. (laughs) And so you kind of have appreciation of that now. So it kind of feels like it doesn't even matter anyway. I'm really interested in drilling down into this, to this level of detail, because I know that there was a backlash against quote unquote clean eating, which is not a term that you have ever used. And to your immense credit, you're one of the only people who's taken that argument head on and responded. (laughs) And I just wanted to put it to you really, because 
as you said, when you started doing it in 2012, veganism was seen as a bit weird. Yeah. Now it's really mainstream. Yeah. But there is this sense that people who advocate a certain kind of restrictive diet are also triggering disordered eating. Yeah. And I just wanted to put that to you for your response. It's a really interesting one. So I obviously started everything that I was doing for my health and it never had anything to do with aesthetics. Like weight loss was the last thing that I cared about and, and still do. Like, And it was one of the only times that I thought, I'm just going to close this yellow down. Like, I don't want to do this because it felt as though whatever you said, whatever you did, people weren't listening. They wanted to put you in a certain box. And interestingly, all the criticism came at women, which is something that I find absolutely fascinating because there are men in this space too. And they're brilliant. Like, I, I don't mean it. I don't have judgment of any person in the space for what they're doing. But I did find it really interesting. There are men whose entire careers are based on kind of before and after photos and weight loss. And yet their names were not mentioned once. So true. And they were only heralded as like, brilliant, 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 brilliant. No backlash whatsoever. Women saying nothing to do with weight loss and eating better were heralded as like witches. Mm. And I, I think it's impossible to have the conversation without acknowledging that. And it, it's a really challenging conversation because by no means do I want to shed a bad light or be like, oh no, it's actually all their fault. But it didn't really feel like a fair conversation in any shape or form. And I think the second part for me with the biggest challenge was, is that obviously everyone's got to find their right balance. But as a country, as a nation, our balance is so off. It's so, so, so off with like, sort of between one in five and one in four of us even managing to get our five a day. You know, the vast majority of us don't eat enough fiber. Fiber is so important for your gut health, which is linked to your brain health, which is linked to everything. And, you know, these things really matter and we're not doing them. And there's an irony in like opening a newspaper and there's a massive headline about, you know, the rise of diabetes and the rise of this and the rise of that. And the, you know, the NHS falling apart. And then the next page saying, these people who are advocating healthy eating are the devil. And you're like, but this doesn't make any sense. Now there has to be a balance between the two. And I think for me, that's the biggest challenge is I've always felt like I don't need to advocate eating pizza or chips. Everyone needs pizza and chips. They don't need any help. Like they don't need any PR, but no one thinks lentils are cool. You know, if you went onto the street now and you talked to a 12 year old and you said like a chip's cool, you know, they'd say yes. And you'd be like, oh, a chickpea's cool. Like, No, obviously not, who are you? And it's not that you want one to be good and one to be bad, but we do desperately need like chickpeas and broccoli and carrots to be as cool as, so we eat them as often as, if not more than these other foods. And that to me is the biggest challenge. And that to me is why I feel like it's a really important conversation to have. Like I think that advocating healthy eating is really, really important, but that's not to say you should only eat broccoli. Like putting out recipes with broccoli doesn't mean that you can never eat a burger ever again. And I think that's my challenge so often with these conversations is they feel so reductive and it feels like people are so keen to find a hole in anyone. You know, we really do that, I think, in the UK so much. And it's such a shame. It's like whenever someone seems to be doing something, you know, and they get somewhere with it, it's like, nope, they can't be doing that. And we cut them down straight away. And you see it all the time, all the time, all the time. But particularly with women, it's really sad. When was the last time you ate a burger? I mean, it was a vegan burger. Okay. <laughs> Let's be honest. You're allowed. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think they're delicious. But my point is you can't live off a burger every single day. We need to have to like dolls and the chickpea chilies and things in there as well. That's my challenge, basically. It's like, how do you change people's mindset to embrace everything 
Sorry, my, my cat has literally just jumped up onto the table and is nudging the microphones. Huxley, no. He's got a lot Come to back. say. There we go. He was just like, how can I be vegan, exactly. Tell me. <laughs> okay, he's now on my lap. When I was reading up about you for this episode, it struck me in so many ways that categorising food as good or bad is the same as categorising failure and success as good or bad. And I know that you don't do that with food. You don't say something is one thing is good and one thing is bad because it is all about balance. But it just really struck me that actually there is no such thing as good or bad. There is simply the experience you take from it in both arenas. A hundred percent. I completely agree. You can't have one without the other. And that's the point. You can't only eat broccoli. You've got to have other things in there too. And you can't only succeed. Like it's not, it's not possible. And I think I completely agree. Like life is the mix of everything. That's what makes it interesting. And that's what makes you succeed in the end, I think. So what would you say to someone who's sort of struggling because they think that they need to do everything all at once? Like what's a small change that someone can make in their lifestyle? You've got to enjoy it. Like that to me is the ultimate thing. I think, you know, with the way you eat, with everything. But I think when it comes to healthy living, there's this assumption exactly of like, there's a kind of sense of deprivation in it and a sense of kind of piousness and that to me is everything that's wrong with it like that's what doesn't work like you've got to have a life that works 365 days a year for the next few decades and that means a kind of relaxed balanced approach but that also gives you lots of energy and you know helps you sleep well and all the rest of it so it's finding that sense of balance and that sense of balance I think comes from enjoying something because it's just not sustainable to do something you don't enjoy it will last a week, it will last two weeks, but it won't last two years. Two years works when you're kind to yourself and you eat in a way that makes you feel good physically and mentally. I love chickpeas, by the way. I love chickpeas. Oh, they're just so great and versatile and I love hummus. I love hummus. Hummus is like my lifeblood. And the saddest thing in the world is that Matt hates hummus. What? How could you have married him? I honestly, sometimes I wonder. And he like hates it. Like the smell of it is the worst thing on earth to him. It's the one thing that is always in my fridge. Me too. And it's my number one snack. So if I'm like in the car or something, that would be like my ultimate snack. And he's like, open all the windows. This is foul. (laughs) Can I just go back to the bit there where we were talking about the backlash? Yeah. How difficult was that for you to cope with? Because essentially it's like being trolled on a national scale. Yeah, I found it really hard. There was one article where I was compared to Donald Trump. Yeah, it was like a whole piece by a very well-known journalist. Another woman, obviously, she hates me, this journalist. I've never met her. She thinks I'm the evil devil. And she wrote another article where she was pregnant about pregnancy and about how, like, people like me make pregnancy look awful because I, like, keep doing yoga throughout pregnancy and things like that. And I'm like, God, I'm just doing what it takes for me to not have cankles because they really hurt. Like, my feet were getting so swollen. It's just, And that, I think, for me, was what I found really challenging because I was like, you know, you cannot like me. That is great. Like, I'm all about that. That's no problem. We all have people we connect to and, res- and who resonate with us and people who don't. But you've never met me. You've never bothered to have a conversation with me. You evidently have not read anything I've ever said. Like, if you come to my Instagram page, you will see pasta after peanut butter toast after porridge. You will never see, like, a little salad. I don't eat like that. That's my worst nightmare. I hate lettuce. There's an irony in that. But, like, I hate green salad. It's, like, one of my worst foods ever. And so it's like you're painting this picture of me, which is just really incorrect. That, for me, was what I found the most frustrating and what made me want to quit, was I was like, what's the point? I feel like I'm pushing against a wall. And yeah, as I said, there was there was a kind of week where there was just so many articles painting me as literally the devil and being like comparing me to Donald Trump. And I'm like, okay, you might not like me, but like that is 
And I'm sorry to offend anyone who, who does like Donald Trump, but that felt a little bit extreme. And yeah, and I really, really struggled. And as someone who was kind of struggling to some extent with their self-esteem, when that all piles in, it's really challenging. But the biggest challenge of all is I'm just like, why can't you just talk to me? Mm. Like I'm such an open person and happy to talk about absolutely anything. And if you come and chat with me and we spend an hour talking and I can tell you a bit about what we do and why we do it and what we do and what we don't do. And then you think everything and you want to write it up, please go ahead because that seems fair. But just destroying someone almost for the sake of it and just jumping on a bandwagon just felt really bitter and a, a little bit misplaced. So how do you deal with it? That someone you've never met and never had a conversation with is saying really mean things about you. How do you keep your sense of self? I just don't read anything. I literally don't read anything, good or bad. I don't read it. I don't want to know. Like if I do an interview with someone, I'll never, ever, ever read what they write up. You can't do it. And it's such a can of worms. Once you read one thing, you read the next. Yeah. It's too dangerous. Yeah, I think that's very, very good advice. And for similar reasons, although it's nowhere near your scale. But I, I never read my Amazon reviews anymore. Because oh God, I, they're horrible. They're horrible. And there are some lovely ones. But I just realised that actually, if I were reading the lovely ones and I was taking in stuff from that, it meant that I had to do the same with the bad ones. I also had to take that in. And I just prefer not to do it now. Because, and that's the point, is you, if you feel you've done your best job, there's only so much you can do and criticism for really important but constructive criticism is really important and it's the same like I never forget the first Daily Mail article about me and what we were doing I read the comments yeah I'll never do it again cardinal error and I was just literally and I mean I've never read anything like it and you're just in floods of tears and but the irony is that is the article that really kick-started Delicious Yellow and sent our book to number one and that was why it became such a successful book. So it's like everything's such a kind of, so, you know, swings and roundabouts with everything. So the thing that made my career take off, that's given me the life I have, is also something that came with like the most horrible things I could ever read about me. It's so interesting because it's not just Daily Mail commenters because I used to write for The Observer, which is yeah. part of the Guardian Media Group. And I worked there for eight years. And one of my biggest realizations from that time was that whatever I wrote on whatever subject, taking whatever position, week after week, I would be battered by the mm. online comments. So actually, it taught me that there was nothing I could do. Like I couldn't please every single person. Yeah, it's impossible. It's completely impossible. And I think I realised I was trying to do that in my real life as well. Mm. And that's impossible because you're basically outsourcing your sense of self to people you've never met. <laughs> but also then you stand for nothing. Exactly. And that's what I realised after the whole clean eating kind of debacle and all the criticism, I then didn't want to say anything. I was like, okay, like I'm mute now. I'm just going to give you a pasta recipe and that's it. I'll have no point and I'll have no stance. And actually, it didn't work. Like, it really didn't work because then no one knows what do you stand for? What do you care about? Like, what do you advocate for? What is your passion? Like, as long as it's something that you feel is genuine and you can stand by time and time again and are happy to defend and talk about, then it's okay if people don't like you. Whereas there's no point being nothing. And that, that's what I've realized is I'm, I'm happy to embrace the people who don't like what we do because I feel like I'm happy and I believe in what we stand for and why we do what we do. And... I think that's important, whereas kind of otherwise you can get so stuck in nothingness in the middle. It's very interesting that we're talking about gender in this context, because you're so right. If you had not carried on doing what you do, you would have been a woman silenced. <laughs> yeah. And all the bad criticism I've had is from women. It sort of brings us on to our, your second failure, 
which yeah. is your failure to breastfeed, yeah. which cannot help but be gendered. And as someone who doesn't have children, has never experienced it herself, but I do know from very good friends of mine how unbelievably inflammatory some of the dialogue around breastfeeding is. Oh my gosh, it's insane. I've never, ever, ever seen anything like it. Like, I was actually really scared to put that as one of my failures because I was so scared to open up the conversation about it because it's something that women are so passionate about. But the reason I think it's a failure and to some extent is that I, in some ways, I feel like in my head, I was slightly one of those women that like had this vision of myself as a mother and a bit of a kind of earth mother. And like, I'd have Sky attached to me the whole time and I'd be breastfeeding her till she was two and people are like, whoa, it's so old. <laughs> and I'd be like, no, breast milk's so important. It's so good for them. And then life happens and you start to actually experience it rather than it being in your head. And I wasn't that mother. It, it didn't work. It didn't work for either of us. And I think that was what was so interesting. And I never, at no, I don't think there was a single day where breastfeeding was easy for us. And it's just not what I expected. And in some ways that was a failure was the standard was so high. And I'd set myself this kind of image of this sort of goddess mother that I just wasn't living up to because it was impossible. And because it just didn't work like that. I mean, there, there was so many kind of boring things. She was had a tongue tie and so she couldn't really move her tongue and I had too much milk. And so she hated it because it was just like being waterboarded basically. <laughs> <laughs> and she couldn't move her tongue to deal with it. So it didn't create a good association for her. And then I went back to work really early because I was committed to doing our next book and our next season of the podcast because we got pregnant really quickly. So, you know, good things and bad things. And I wasn't there enough and I was like, I'd be in a meeting and I'd be watching my phone and watching my watch and like would sprint back. But then I was so stressed and I just wasn't there to feed enough. So the milk started drying up and then she was really frustrated. Anyway, and after about four and a half months, Matt sat me down and was like, you, I'm so sorry to say it, but he was like, you are miserable right now. He was like, it's not fun to live with you. The last four weeks have not been fun. He's like, you're bringing everything down. He's like, you're so one track minded that like nothing else exists anymore. And I don't think it's serving anyone in this family. Oh my goodness. And he did it in a really nice way. And actually it was the best thing he could have said because for about a month, it was literally the only thing I could do. I was like, no, I can't come out. No, I can't do this. I must pump. And I was doing something called power pumping where you pump like every 15 minutes for like two hours. I mean, what, it's just, there's life and there's, you know, like martyrdom and I was completely putting myself in the latter and it was just hell it wasn't fun Sky didn't like breastfeeding she didn't want to go on the boob and she never found comfort in it she's such a little independent woman from day one like she wants to see what's going on and she was just never interested and I was also back at work within a month of her being born and so not sleeping at all for like a year was also not an option like I was committed to what we were doing and it was just so interesting so it took him Again, saying that for me to kind of be honest with myself and being like, this isn't working. I'm kind of forcing this on both of us. And the milk's just not there anymore. And after a few weeks, I kind of said, you know what? Like, actually, I'm going to let this phase out. She was so happy. She'd never had any interest in going back on it. She didn't even notice. And our relationship so much better. Life just became so much better and so easy. And I put up, but then I put up a picture on Instagram where she was having a bottle. And I just said, nothing about what was in the bottle I mean it could easily have been just like express milk and I have never experienced comments like it bearing in mind it didn't even say anything 
And then some people were like, we're going to report you to like the ASA. It's illegal to promote formula. And, you know, you didn't try everything. You're lying. Like, you know, there's that the next thing. And it was just, it was so fascinating. I've never, ever, ever experienced. And then other mothers emailing me privately saying, you know, like, thanks for being honest. I found breastfeeding really hard, but I'm too scared to comment on your picture because I know I'll be attacked if I say I didn't breastfeed my child. But why? Why do you think this is? It is true. Like, breast milk is better you know the science is there and and I I totally respect and appreciate that so it is a difficult one like I get why we need to say like if you can do it please do it Mm. like it is better for the baby but there's also what I came to realize and what Matt was kind of saying it's like but life is important for Sky like yes boob milk is brilliant and if you can do that and be like in a good relationship with your partner and be kind of happy and therefore creating a happy relationship for your child, then it's great. But I was thinking that nothing else mattered and all that mattered for her kind of health and happiness was boob milk. And it didn't matter that I was so stressed and I was crazy and I wasn't available for anything else in my life and didn't take one second to kind of breathe. But anyway, I've never experienced so much judgment in my whole life and so much judgment of myself. I was like, felt like I'd failed her 100% in the fact that I was admitting kind of defeat and admitting that I couldn't really do it, which is why I was sending myself so crazy because I was refusing to possibly admit that. How incredible that you and Matt can communicate that clearly with each other. I think that's the foundation of a really brilliant relationship. Yeah, I needed to hear it. I really, really did. Sky's six months now. How do you feel about your quote-unquote failure to breastfeed now? I feel like in the last month, I've I've really come to terms with it. And it was partly, she is so much happier. She's so happy. And so it's like, well, you know, what, what more could you possibly want? She's literally the happiest baby ever. And I'm so happy for it. And it was like within a week of admitting it and trying it, I was like, oh my gosh, life is transformed. And the thing that's so interesting as well, and I was talking to Matt about doing this and my failures last night, And he was like, I also think it's really interesting that you picked it as a failure because he's like, you didn't actually fail. Mm -hmm. He was like, you breastfed her for four and a half months. And then I did it kind of 50% for the next month. So he was like, that's actually also not even a failure to some extent. And, but I see it. It's like, oh my gosh, you failed because you were going to do it for a year and you didn't manage a year. So it's terrible. It's really black and white way of looking at it. Well, I know that your favourite episode of How to Fail is the one with Mo Gaudat, which is also one of my favourites of all time because it really changed my life. But Mo says this thing, and he's the man who developed an algorithm for happiness. And essentially his algorithm is is that you need to live your life within your expectation of it. So as long as life is less than or equal to your expectation, then you can be happy. And I think that's such a telling story, Ella, of how you had an expectation of yourself as a mother that wasn't grounded on any reality because you can't project a future version of you because it doesn't exist and therefore the expectation making you unhappy totally and I also wasn't giving myself any credit for anything else like again Matt was really helpful in that because he was like but you're creating a life for her in working and again some mums were so mean about like going back to work and and someone was like just close it down and I was like I can't just close it down like it doesn't work like that like if we just close it down, we are unemployed. <laughs> like, yeah. We're really in trouble. Like That's not good for Sky either. And I think that's what's fascinating is, yeah, there was this just kind of complete madness in the level of judgment. And there's someone said, well, you know, I didn't work at all for six years. And as a result, we had to sell our house and do this. And I was like, but I'm really proud of my career. Yeah. And I really hope it's inspiring to Sky. And I 
think it's important. But again, I was feeling like I was a terrible mum because I was back at work and because I was prioritizing that alongside her. And it's, yeah, just that kind of tension between trying to give two parts of your life kind of TLC really kind of came to a head. I can't thank you enough for talking about it. It's the first ever breastfeeding failure we've had. And I think it's so important and it will bring so much comfort to so many women out there. But I think, yeah, and I think for me, it's not even necessarily about the feeling. I think it's that, that as you said, it's that like being torn between different mm. things. And that for me is what I really realised it symbolised. And I told you, this is my first kind of official day back at work today. And it actually, having kind of been through that, made me feel so much less guilty about leaving her. You know, I'm really happy with who she's with. I know she's really happy, you know, and actually like, I'm really proud to go and, you know, create a company and be a female founded company and have, you know, have her hopefully come and work in it one day and kind of be a part of it and actually try and let go of that guilt because you can't do everything and you can't do everything right. Before we get on to your third and final failure, I wanted to ask you about social media because you do have 1.7 million followers at the moment. And you talked there about how you posted a picture and it triggered all of this judgment. How do you manage what you post and how aware of you of the impact that social media might have on your mental health? Yeah, increasingly aware, actually, and increasingly aware that it's not just me, it's, it's whoever's consuming it. And I think I think it's an impossible situation, basically, social media. I don't know if anyone can get it right. It's really interesting because I think if we reduce what we did to like simply just recipes, nothing else, people wouldn't be as engaged. And that's what's so interesting is people engage so much in the human aspect of it. But then in the human aspect of it, you're polarizing. And so how you find the balance, I don't know. But I, for me, I used to hold myself to much higher standards than I currently do. And I think Sky's been a really good lesson in that. And, you know, I used to be like every single day I have to reply to every single person. And it's madness. And it sent me crazy. You know, I literally wake up in the morning. You say you wake up at like 5 a.m., you know, and you could go back to sleep. And I'm like, no, I must go through my Instagram inbox. All of the messages. All of the messages. Yeah. Ella. Every single day. Sometimes it would be like six, seven hundred. <gasps> I'd spend like five hours doing it. I had no life. And it was genuinely insane. Like total madness. Because I felt like I was failing people if I didn't. And the challenges I still do because in amongst things that like don't really have to reply to because they're just someone sharing a picture of a recipe they made. And it's lovely to see it and acknowledge it. But if you don't get around to that, like it's okay. I don't think they're even expecting you to necessarily see it. They're just saying like, oh, I got this recipe from the Delicious Yellow book. Whereas another message will actually be like a really important message. Either let's say like, you know, there was a reason they need to tell us something or they can't find our product where, so, you know, we need to reply to them and let them know where to find it. Or it's someone sharing their story and it's really heartfelt. And not replying to that is like a sense of rejection to them, but you might not see it. And so I still struggle with that and try and go through the whole inbox to pick out important messages as much as I can. And you'll reply still personally, tapping it out on your phone. Yeah, no one else uses our social media. Just me. I'm really, really amazed by that and impressed because I don't answer all my messages. Oh, I don't anymore. Okay, fine. No, no, no. That was (laughs) one of my things. After Sky was born, I was still trying to do it. And then I was like... I'm insane. I've got this like week old baby. I'm never going to get this time back. Like get a life. Although I have to say we met over Instagram. We exactly. DM'd each other. So, yeah. so sometimes it really is beneficial. It is. And I, I learned so much from it, but I think it's removing the pressure to have to do it all. Yeah. You know, do as much as you possibly can. Like on my way home now, I'll go through it. 
and I've got like 40 minutes, I'll hopefully get through loads. But if I get through 60%, that's fab. And there's nothing I can do about that other 40%. And I read somewhere that recently you curated the people that you follow. So you ditched sort of 900 people that you follow because yeah. they weren't making you happy. Yeah, I did the cull of all culls and Instagram tried to ban me from it. I think because I, I, I followed too many people too quickly that I right. thought I was like... A bot. Yeah, messing with things. <laughs> but yeah, it was the best thing I've done in ages. It really was. And I actually set up a private account, which I use, you know, and I'll share pictures of like Sky and things like that on it. But it's, I think I've only got 60 people that follow me. And it's literally like my family and my best, best friends. And that's it. And that I love because then I follow them. And so that takes me three minutes to look through every single day, you know, because it's so small. Mm. But it means I do always see anything from, you know, my closest people in my life, which I love because I want to make sure I see it and see what they're up to and it doesn't get lost in amongst everything. But on Delicious Ciela, I did the cull of all culls. I just used to follow all these people. And then I was like, why am I following this? I also banned myself from the Daily Mail online because it's so easy to get so consumed in these things. But I was like, I don't know what this is giving me. Like, I really, really don't. Like, let's be honest, it's not giving me the news. You know, I can get that from like BBC News. It's just giving me like celebrity gossip and like how much does that really serve me? Like, and it, it don't mean that in a judgment. I've read it for a very, very, very long time. But I just feel like then you start comparing yourself to Kim Kardashian. Why are you comparing yourself to Kim Kardashian? Like, even if it's subconscious, when you're continuously looking at all these other people, you are looking at what you think is their life. It's not their life. Like, we all know that, but it's easy to get consumed in it. I was following like various like Victoria's Secret models. And I'm like, what am I getting from this? I've done the same thing. So, and I always say to people, like, it doesn't matter. You don't need a reason to unfollow. Yeah. It doesn't make you a bad person. No one's judging you for doing it. Least of all the person that you've unfollowed who won't And they're realize. not doing anything wrong either. No, exactly. It's nothing to do with them. No. It's all the stuff that you bring to it. It's your baggage. And if it just makes you feel a bit grubby, then exactly. choose not to do it. Well, especially as like, you know, I've got like, you know, when you're a new mum and you're like covered in milk and sick and like, you know, you haven't washed yourself in a few days and you're a bit rank. Then like following like Gigi Hadid, who's like, you know, getting ready for her Vogue shoot. Like it's just, you know, she's not doing anything wrong. Like she looks amazing and like good luck at Vogue. Yeah. But like you are the polar opposite in your pajamas still at 3 p.m. as I said like covered in all kinds of bodily fluids like you just don't need that level of comparison it, it doesn't do you good and I hate the one thing I, I actually love social media and I think sometimes it gets an unnecessarily bad rep but the one thing I hate on Instagram is that little magnifying glass that shows you that search thing that shows you like accounts you might like yeah that for me is like the page of doom because I think you can get lost in a spiral there of things that don't make you happy. Like you can curate who you follow. I follow loads of food pages I like. You know, there's a few like really inspiring mothering pages I like. There are loads of birth things I used to follow, which like really freaked people. Like she'd be sitting on the bus looking at it and it'd be like really graphic pictures of like babies coming out of vaginas and the person on the bus looking at you like, what are you watching? But I loved it and I can curate that where suddenly it's showing me like, you know, a mum who's given birth seven days ago, who's in a bikini. And I'm like, I really don't need to see that. I'm wearing an adult nappy, you know? Also, <laughs> that's so funny. But also, I always wonder who the Instagram algorithm thinks I am. Because I, I, I get like Love Island Australia contestants <laughs> and kind of slipper accounts. <laughs> like, who do you, why, why are these my interests? <laughs> I know, it's absolutely fascinating. I don't know how they kind of bring it all together. But yeah, it's that's the, my one thing that I wish they'd take away. Your final failure is your failure to accept failure. Yeah. Specifically with regards to your business. So yeah. tell us about that. 
I mean, I think that's, it's a bit like what you said at the beginning. I think I've come now to appreciate that like, we will never succeed without failing. And so now I'm like so happy to admit within 10 seconds that something's a terrible idea and we've really got it wrong and we've misjudged it. But at the beginning, I wonder if it's also at the beginning, you're trying to prove yourself a bit more and trying to prove that like, yes, it is a good idea. And like, yes, we can do it. And so there's just so many things we did, some big and some small, that we should have just, after like 10 seconds, said, what on earth are we doing? I think the first example, which is a small example, but was that we were meant to open the first deli, I think in September. And by October, we were not about to open, but we had taken on all the chefs and everything was ready. And so we were paying these huge bills and we would had no like no pounds coming in and we were getting into a really 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 sticky situation and so we didn't know what to do so we thought well we could deliver like we can use the kitchen and we've got the kind of manpower and so there was a delivery app that doesn't exist anymore called quick up and we said okay well like we could do a partnership with them and we could deliver the food and it'd be great because we can get feedback and you know we thought this was like the best plan ever and it would tie us over financially until we opened and so we announced that we were going to do it I mean, it was the dumbest thing anyone could have ever done. We were going to deliver from our office, which was the second floor. I mean, it was the smallest room. I don't know how many square foot it was, but it was like one small room with like a kind of home-sized fridge, just like a normal fridge that you'd have in your house. And we thought somehow that we could keep all the food in there to deliver it. I mean, it was like the most mad, naive thing anyone's ever thought. And it was on the second floor and it's on the street called Bloomsbury Street, which runs just by the British Museum. There's no way you can stop. It's the angriest street in London. Like you've never heard honking anywhere like it. And yeah, there's nowhere to pull over. But yeah, we were like brilliant. I know but it was also illegal, I think, to trade out of there because it was an office. So, <laughs> and there were loads of other offices in the building. Because to begin with, I was like, that's a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Nah. It sounds like a great idea. <laughs> yeah. And it's up two slides of stairs. Anyway, so we like did this big announcement on social media. It's so exciting, guys. You can now get our food anywhere in London. Also, they deliver anywhere in London. We were like, perfect. We can deliver anywhere in London. Also forgetting that it could take like an hour and a half to get to you wherever you are. Anyway, so the app crashed when we launched because there were so many people on it trying to order the food, which we didn't realise. And I, we just thought no one had ordered it. So we were all standing there like so excited. And after 10 minutes, we were like, oh my gosh, this is, this is really fucked up. No one wants it. And we've spent all this money and we're going to open this site. No one's going to come. We then realised, I opened the door to go to the loo and there was like delivery drivers all the way up the stairs of the office. And we didn't obviously have enough food or labels already. Anyway, it was, we then went out and like ran to Argos and bought like five more fridges. (laughs) The bell just kept on going and then the drivers had nowhere to park. So they were livid and there was nowhere. We didn't have enough manpower to get the boxes labeled and in and out the door. And we were literally just sitting in the office for like 12 hours a day trying to do this. It was a disaster of all disasters. And somehow we tried to keep it up for like 10 whole days. Oh my God, how stressful. Before saying like, what are we thinking? First of all, this is not okay in our lease. Second of all, we don't have the manpower for this. Third of all, this office is so ill-equipped for it, it's extraordinary. And fourth of all, we don't even have the fridge base anymore. But I don't know why on the end of day one, we couldn't have said like, Mm. okay, this doesn't work. Like, why did we go out and spend all that money on fridges? (laughs) So many fridges. There was nowhere to sit in the office anymore. (laughs) No one could do any work in the office because there was nowhere to sit because all there was was like packaging everywhere. You were just like a sea of packaging in fridges. And yeah, anyway, and and it was just a complete, because it was like, no, we've got to prove we can do this. We've got to do it for three months like we said we would. And it was a failure beyond all failures. Like it was a disaster in every sense. And 
again, we were trying to have an engagement party that week because our engagement had been slightly kind of clouded by my parents. And so we had all our friends coming over because loads of our best friends live in America. And we were like, no, we can't see you. We've got to stand by our fridges. Oh my God. <laughs> for the most failed failure ever. So that was kind of one good lesson. And then the second was that the delis were meant to be the main part of our business. Like when we met and we started talking about what we were going to do with Delicious Yellow and this kind of online community we created, that that was really the plan. And we opened one and it was doing so, so, so well, but it was tiny. It didn't really work well there was only 16 seats in it so as a result you'd end up with like three hour queues out the door which was just a bit of a nightmare and like didn't give people the right experience so we really quickly realized we needed a bigger site and then we got kind of carried away we're like right we'll open like eight sites and we took on like a really big kitchen to be able to kind of service all the different sites and the kitchen we needed the eight sites for the kitchen because it was huge and we then opened a third site and it was we just had this realization of like this is this is insanity. And at the same time, we were also trying to build the products business and go into supermarkets. And that had really taken off in a way that we hadn't expected. And I think by that point, we were then in three and a half thousand stores and trying to manage all of that, as well as the original side of Delicious Yellow with the cookbooks and the app and things like that. And I remember we went to a meeting because we were looking at raising some money with the founders of Innocent had an investment group. And they were like, you're doing too many different things. Like businesses succeed when they do one thing. You know, for them, it was smoothies. And they're like, not only are you trying to have three completely different businesses with like kind of media, physical spaces and supermarket. In the supermarket, you're also trying to do loads of different things. And then you're having loads of different sites and then you're doing lots of different media. And we were like, no, 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 like this is right. This is right. And it was so interesting in this kind of inability to admit that like we'd taken off way more than we could possibly chew. And like each site was successful, but as a group, we'd have to open four more sites and how on earth are we going to open four more sites be at every meeting for tesco's and sainsbury's all the production for everything publish the books write the books i mean it was completely and utterly impossible we would have had to raise so much money to open all the sites we would have ended up owning such a small percentage of our business and it just took us actually me longer than matt but it took us both so long to admit we're doing way too much like what's succeeding, what's really working, let's focus on that. Let's not just raise loads more money to open loads more sites. Was part of the reason it was difficult to admit because it was so public? Yeah, so public. And then it was so interesting because then we did say, okay, actually, we're done. We're not doing this. We're going to keep one site, which was our biggest site, and then we'll do everything else. And then again, like all the papers were like, delicious, the Ella's failed, delicious, the Ella's failing see here's one more example of kind of an idiot girl basically and I was like okay wait this is so unfair at that point we're in about four and a half five thousand supermarkets with like 12 different products which is really really succeeding and we've got a number one app and we've got the books and it's not to be like oh my gosh we're so brilliant we're not we get lots of things wrong but I was like we haven't failed and I had the CEO of one of the supermarkets call me and ask if we were going out of business our commercial team had to explain to all the buyers, like, it was okay, we weren't going under. Like, the the papers put us in a really, really difficult position. It was so awkward, because I was like, we're not going out of business, we're not going under. Like, financially, the company is in a really good spot. Each of the sites are making money, but running a site business just requires more money to open more sites. But... It was just absolutely fascinating. It's so interesting because it's almost like they wanted you to fail because they perceived you as too young, too smug, too everything, too has it on a plate. Like, yeah, it, it feels almost- like you can't win. And yeah. actually one of my best friends 
said to me, which it stuck with me forever. She was like, lots of her friends, who I don't really know, were like thrilled. And they were like, oh my God, is it true? Is Delicious Yellow going under? Which is so interesting. Like the pleasure in someone's failure. And also, and you know, you said at the beginning about 70 people, we had to let 40 people go, which was the hardest thing anyone's ever had to, like, it was so horrible. Like, this is so human. Like, 40 people lost their jobs because it didn't work for us to operate three sites that made sense to operate one. How does that feel when you have to tell people that they don't It's horrendous. It's absolutely horrendous. Like, especially, you know, there were two people who'd worked with us right from the beginning. Like, we knew them so, so, so well. You know, when you're starting a company, you're working together literally, like, 14 hours a day, seven days a week. These people are, like, truly your family. You spend no time with your actual friends and family. And you know everything about them and their life. And you have to say to them, like, I'm so sorry. Like, there's nothing left. And at some point, there's nothing you can do. You have to say it. But it's horrendous absolutely horrendous like it's the most horrible thing to have to do to someone and yeah it was just so interesting it was like how can you take pleasure in this it's it's a horrible thing for for these people silicon valley has been an early adopter of the idea of failure there's that idea that you fail fast and you learn your lessons quickly yeah do you subscribe to that now totally yeah yeah i think and i think it's such an important thing you have to accept when something's not working and it happens all the time. Things don't work. So, for example, like the first product we ever launched was our energy balls. And at the time, they were really innovative. There was nothing like it. But then there started to be more things like it, more things like it. And we needed to say, well, we need to be more innovative. We need to do something different. We need to be better. And so we did something that has like cashew butter in the middle and they don't exist. And so it's like you have to admit, okay, we've got to do more. We've got to do better. You can't just rely on what you've already done. And I, I think it's so true. Like you will fail. You can't start a career, you certainly can't start a business and not fail. I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. Like you'll get so much wrong, but the quicker you can say like, this isn't right, the easier it is to change everything. And the more wedded into your like, the murkiness of failure you get, the harder it is to unpick. What's it like working with your husband? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? It gets easier and easier. It was quite intense at the start, actually, because, you know, obviously when you get started, you don't really have a team. There was like three or four of us and everyone's doing everything. Like there aren't job roles because there's not enough people. You know, you might be hired as the finance, whatever, but ultimately you'll also end up doing seven other things. And so there was no separation in our roles because everything needed everyone all the time. Like it was just manpower basically. And now as we've grown, we now have like a marketing director and a finance director and a supply chain director and all the rest of it. And so we have kind of actual departments and teams of people and we have things that therefore we each look after. And as a result, the kind of whole picture is shared, which is really nice because actually running a business, I think can be incredibly lonely. And again, it looks really glam, but actually like it can be really, really lonely and tough and intense. And it's you who's got to kind of take on the burden of that. And so to have someone to share that with is amazing. And like, I think we're both really, really grateful for it. But it's nice now that like actually our day to day is very, very separate. So you have something to talk about because I (laughs) always got something to talk about. Oh, Ella, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. It really has. I'm so grateful that you came on and were so open and vulnerable when it doesn't necessarily come naturally because of everything that you've been through. And I just know that this will help so many people. 
That's my biggest, biggest pleasure. Thank you. As I said at the beginning, I'm how to fail's number one fan. So I it's, love uh, you yeah. saying that. I'll pay you later. Um, <laughs> I'm deliciously Ella's cashew butter energy balls number one fan. Oh, perfect. Um, BTW. But I wanted to ask you one final question, yeah. which is whether you still watch the Kardashians. Oh my gosh, I love the Kardashians. <laughs> so do I. Yeah, and it, do you know what was so interesting? Matt judged me so much for it. And then when his mum was really sick, so every single, they lived in Warwickshire, so a couple of hours outside London, and we'd go up every Friday afternoon and spend the weekend there. And, you know, it was emotionally heavy, obviously, of course, because you're dealing with something really challenging. And so sometimes, like, I would just go and watch the Kardashians. It's like the ultimate light relief. And Matt used to really be judgmental. And I was like, just try it. And I was like, it's honestly amazing because your brain just kind of turns off for a sec and you can just, like, not think about anything. It doesn't require any brain power. And he got so hooked. He'll probably kill me for admitting this so publicly. But he got so hooked for that exact reason. And I think we were talking about it earlier, like Love Island, these kinds of shows. Like sometimes think we're, we're a bit mean to each other for watching them. But like there's something brilliant about the kind of banality almost of them. When life's so intense and there's so much going on, the kind of ability just to sort of let your brain just wander and switch off is amazing. That light relief is much needed, I think. I totally agree. As the saying goes, the couple that runs a business together and watches the Kardashians together <laughs> stays together. <laughs> yeah, that famous, famous, famous saying. Ella Mills, thank you so much for coming on How to Fail. My pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.